Chapter Thirty of Fighting the Flying Circus. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Brett Downey. Fighting the Flying Circus by Captain Eddie Rickenbacker. Chapter Thirty: A Day's Work, Six Victories. With the beginning of October, ninety-four squadron took on a new phase of air fighting. We were taken away from the general orders affecting the first pursuit wing and were delegated to patrol the lines at low altitude, not exceeding 2,000 feet. This meant serious business to us, for not only would we be under more severe archie fire, but we would be an easy target for the higher Hun formations, who could peek down upon us at their own pleasure. These new orders were intended to provide a means of defense against the low-flying enemy machines which came over our lines. Usually they were protected by fighting machines. Rarely did they attempt to penetrate to any considerable distance back of no man's land. They came over to follow the lines and see what we were doing on our front, leaving to their high-flying photographic machines the inspection of our rear. On October 2nd, Reed Chambers led out the first patrol under these new orders. He had five machines with him, and I went along on a voluntary patrol to see how the new scheme was going to work out. In order to act somewhat in a protective capacity, I took a higher level and followed them back and forth over their beat at 2,000 feet or more above them. The course of this patrol was between sivry sur meuse and Romagne. We had turned back towards the west at the end of one beat and were nearing the turning point when I observed a two-seater Hanover machine of the enemy trying to steal across our lines behind us. He was quite low and was already across the front when I first discovered him. In order to tempt him a little more distance away from his lines, I made no sign of noticing him, but throttled down to my lowest speed and continued straight ahead with some climb. The pilots in chambers formation were below me and had evidently not seen the intruder at all as yet. Calculating the positions of our two machines as we drew away from each other, I decided I could now cut off the Hanover before he reached his lines, even if he saw me the moment I turned. Accordingly, I peeked swiftly back, aiming at a point just behind our front, where I estimated our meeting must take place. To my surprise, however, the enemy machine did not race for home, but continued ahead on his mission. Was this brazenness, good tactics, mixed with abundant self-confidence? Or hadn't the pilot or observer seen me up above them? I wondered what manner of aviators I had to deal with, as I turned after them and the distance between us narrowed. A victory seemed so easy that I feared some deep strategy lay behind it all. Closer and closer I stole up in their rear, yet the observer did not even look about him to see if his rear was safe. At one hundred yards I fixed my sights upon the slothful observer in his rear cockpit and prepared to fire. He had but one gun mounted on a tournelle, and this gun was not even pointing in my direction. After my first shot he would swing it around, I conjectured, and I would be compelled then to come in through his stream of bullets. Well, I had two guns to his one, and he would have to face double the amount of bullets from my spod. Now I was at fifty yards and could not miss. Taking deliberate aim, I pulled both triggers. The observer fell limply over the side of his cockpit without firing a shot. My speed carried me swiftly over the Hanover, which had begun to bank over and turn for home as my first shots entered its fuselage. Heading off the pilot, I braved his few shots and again obtained a position in his rear and had him at my mercy, and at that very critical moment both of my guns jammed. Infuriated at this piece of bad luck, I still had the thought to realize 
that the enemy pilot did not know I could not shoot, so I again came up and forced him to make a turn to the east to avoid what he considered a fatal position. And at that moment I saw Reed Chambers flying directly towards me, the rest of his patrol streaming in along behind him. Reed was firing as he flew. His first burst finished the pilot and the Hanover settled with a gradual glide down among the shell-holes that covered the ground just north of Montfaucon, a good two miles within our lines. It was the first machine that I had brought down behind our lines, or assisted to bring down, for Reed Chambers shared this victory with me, in such condition that we were able to fly it again. A few minutes' work with my guns cleared both jams. I had paid little attention to the rest of my pilots during this operation, and indeed, had scarcely noticed where my aeroplane was taking me through the air, for I had to work with one hand holding the lever, and the other pressing back the feeding mechanism of the guns, and the spod was taking care of herself. Now, after clearing out the crushed cartridges, I had just fired a few rounds into Germany, to see that the guns were both in working order, when suddenly, not fifty yards in front of me, I saw a whole flock of enemy Fokkers passing through a thin stratum of clouds. It was an ideal hiding-place for a surprise attack, and they had been lying in wait for our spots without noticing me until I almost bumped into them. The next instant I was over on my wing and nose, performing a double-quick spin out of their range. All eight of them were on top of me, firing as they followed my gyrations. Tracer bullets went whizzing past me every second, and, try as I might, I could not select an opening that would permit me to slip through them with any hope of safety. The earth was rapidly coming up to meet me, and the Fockers were as ravenously bent on my destruction as ever, when I opened up my motor and dove vertically towards the ground with throttle wide open. As I did so, I was conscious that other machines were coming in from behind me, and that the Fockers had suddenly left off firing their beastly flaming bullets. Glancing back, I saw my own spots had arrived in the very nick of time. Reed Chambers was in pursuit of the fleeing Huns, and the whole circus was climbing southwards to gain the shelter of the low-hanging clouds. Reed saw that they would gain their protection before he could overtake them. With his usual good judgment, he let them proceed until the last man was swallowed up within them. Then he turned suddenly to the north, and sought a place between them and their lines where they might be expected to issue out and make for home. Climbing for all I was worth, I arrived at the northern edge of the cloud-bank at the same time Reed reached there. We had made one or two circles just beneath the billowy mass of white, when out burst the leader of the Huns over our heads, and one by one his formation followed him. In a trice, Reed and I were under the last Fokker's tails. Reed took the left, and I took the right, and at almost the same second we both began firing. I had let go two hundred rounds when I saw my man falling, and again, at almost the same instant, Reed ceased firing and his man too dropped out of line and began his last landing. The rest of the formation fled straight on into their own lines, and we were unable to overtake them. As we turned back, we saw our two victims crash, almost simultaneously, fully a mile back of our lines. Before we reached the aerodrome, official confirmation of our three victories had been telephoned in. Lieutenant Cook, who was now looked upon as our most successful balloon strafer, had gone out this morning with Lieutenant Crocker as helper, to get an enemy balloon that hung over the eastern edge of the town of Grand Pré. Cookie now had three balloons, and was becoming quite fastidious in his methods of shooting down these disagreeable targets. He naturally insisted upon essential attention being given his ammunition and his guns, for he believed in making one straight dash through the circle of Archie, and getting in one long burst of incendiary bullets into the balloon, and then leaving it alone. 
This returning again and again through the Archie barrage for several attacks is simply a foolish method of suicide. At 5.30 in the morning, Cook and Crocker left the field and proceeded to the Argonne. Here they located Grand Pre, but could not discover the balloon. Finally, after arousing the whole neighborhood, Cook found his gas bag supinely resting on the ground, where it was tied down into its bed. It was in a decidedly bad place for an attack, but Cook unhesitatingly stuck down his nose and began firing as he dived. About twenty or thirty shots left his guns, and then both jammed. With a string of burning words, Cookie turned around as he zoomed up over the balloon and hurled at it the small hammer or tool used by pilots for clearing gun jams. He was so enraged over his bad luck that he did not even wait for Crocker to overtake him, but made straight for home, climbed out of his machine and marched into the armorer's office, mad as a hornet. What language he used there, neither Cook nor the armament officer would afterwards repeat, but in the midst of his abusive description of guns, ammunition, mechanics, and armament officers in general, in walked Lieutenant Crocker, whom Cook had left behind at Grand Pre. "'Congrats, Cookie,' said Crocker triumphantly. "'That was certainly fine work. You got him with his truck, office, and all, this time.' Cook looked at Crocker with some anger and much mortification. "'Got what?' he shouted rather violently. Ordinarily, Cookie was the sweetest-tempered man in the outfit, barring Jimmy Meisner. "'Why, the Hun balloon!' replied Crocker, looking up at him indignantly. "'Didn't you see him go down in flames? He hung fire for half a minute owing to the dew and dampness on the outside, but when he started he went with one burst.' Cook stood there looking at his friend anxiously for a moment. There was no question about his seriousness and truth. Then Cookie said slowly, "'Well, I'm damned!' That's the first time I ever heard of getting a balloon with a jam-hammer and hot language. The next day, October 3rd, a carefully planned attack on an enemy balloon back of Ducan was carried out in the middle of the afternoon by our squadron. Montfaucon was still the center of operations for the American army. The country was extremely difficult, owing to the hills and forests along the Meuse River, all of which the Germans had amply prepared for stubborn defense. The presence of their observation balloons added one source of benefit to them which we knew could be destroyed. So we were sent out in full daylight to accomplish this end. Thorn Taylor led our formation. Practically our whole squadron left the aerodrome at three o'clock. Ham Coolidge and Crocker, who were selected as the two balloon strafers for the day, flying with us on the patrol. At three-thirty precisely, we were to find ourselves over the Hun balloon at Dulcon, and there these two pilots were to make a sudden dash down at the balloon, one behind the other. It was a new daylight dodge we would try to put over the Germans before they suspected the object of our mission. We expected to find enemy planes about guarding this important observation post of the enemy, and it was necessary to take along enough machines of our own to sweep them away from the path which our two strafers must take to get to their balloon. Therefore I had all the pilots set their watches exactly with mine, and gave them all instructions to cross the lines precisely at 3.45 and fly between Coolidge and Crocker and any hostile aircraft that might intercept them. With every man fully schooled in his part of the game, we all took off. Walter Avery of 95 Squadron accompanied us. Avery was the pilot who had forced down the celebrated Hun ace Menkoff early in August on the Chateau Thierry front. Menkoff then had a string of 37 victories to his credit, and, strange as it may seem, this was Avery's first air combat. Avery disabled Menkoff's motor with one of his bullets, 
and the German pilot decided it wiser to drop down our side of the lines and surrender himself rather than take the chance of being killed trying to glide home on a crippled machine. Great was his disgust when he landed to discover that his conqueror was a green American pilot. As the formation continued its patrol some distance this side of our lines, Coolidge and Crocker left the rest and placed themselves a good distance the other side of Montfaucon. We found no enemy machines in our vicinity, but were not sure that they would not appear as soon as we approached the Ducon balloon. As my watch neared the hour, I crept a little nearer the point of attack. Looking over the situation ahead of me, some four or five miles, I suddenly saw two spots streaking ahead with all their speed in the direction of the balloon. I looked at my watch. It was but three-forty. Coolidge and Crocker were each afraid that the other would steal a march on him, and were both so anxious to get the balloon that they disobeyed orders and had gone in several minutes ahead of the stated time. Looking around, I saw that my formation of spods were just coming up in implicit obedience to orders. But now, instead of protecting our two picked men, we would arrive there only after the ceremony was over. As we all opened up in pursuit of the two pilots, I saw advancing to cut them off from the balloon a formation of six Fokkers. Then one lone spod seemed to appear from somewhere in the clouds and flew in to engage the Fokkers. During the brief melee which followed, Many things happened at the same time. The lone spod fell to earth and crashed back in Germany. The balloon burst into flames, indicating that either Coolidge or Crocker had succeeded in reaching the mark despite the Fokkers. And at the same moment the clouds behind me seemed to be emitting swarms of Fokker-fighting airplanes which hurled themselves upon our spods. They were behind me, for I had distanced the others somewhat, and had altered my direction to go to the rescue of the unknown spod which had just fallen. But, as I had started too late to be of any assistance, I again diverted my course to attack the two German biplane machines, which I could distinguish coming into the fight from the direction of Donsormuse. I wondered whether it was Coolidge or Crocker or some other who had fallen. Whoever it was, he had made a gallant fight, although if they had obeyed orders and waited for the agreed time of attack, he would not have had such odds against him. One of the biplane machines saw me coming, and cravenly turned back, without notifying his companion. I surprised the latter, and after a very brief bit of maneuvering, shot him down completely out of control. Knowing it would be extremely difficult to gain a confirmation of this victory, so far behind the German lines, I waited about for a few moments until I saw him crash violently into the ground. I was satisfied I had destroyed him, whether anybody else ever knew it or not. In fact, this victory of mine never was confirmed. Many twisting combats were in progress as I gained, again, the part of the heavens above Ducon. Several machines had fallen, but whether friend or foe I could not distinguish from this distance. The spots were scattered all over the sky, and our formation was hopelessly destroyed. I determined to call them together, and take them back to our lines. Our balloon was in flames, our mission ended, and we were taking unwise risks fighting ten miles within German lines, where a mishap would drop some luckless pilot prisoners in their territory. The enemy pilots were only too willing to let us go. As I collected my pilots about me and headed for home, the Bosch lost no time in widening the distance between us. I dropped back and saw the last of the spots had crossed the lines and were well on their way. Then, noticing something going on east of me, near the city of Verdun, I made a detour to investigate it. It was a combat between two machines that was going on just south of our front. Hastening ahead with all possible speed, I arrived there at a most fortunate moment, 
to find that Ted Curtis, of 95, had just been forced to abandon an attack on a German LVG by reason of a gun jam. The Hun pilot was endeavoring to make his escape as I reached him from one side, and a spa that I later recognized as belonging to Ham Coolidge came in on the other. Diving down with terrific speed, I began firing at one hundred yards. With my first burst, I noticed the gas tank of the enemy machine catch fire. Ham began firing as he approached on the other side, but already the two unfortunate occupants of the observing machine knew their coming doom. The LVG descended rapidly, the wind fanning the flames into a fiery furnace. The two unfortunate aviators must have been burned to a crisp long before the ground was reached. When the crash did come, there was a great explosion, and all that remained of the airplane was a black cloud of smoke and dust that ascended a few yards and was scattered to the four winds. Adjusting matters that night, I found that Ham Coolidge was the hero of the day with the balloon and one Fokker to his credit, besides one half vanquishing of the LVG. Thorn Taylor, Will Palmer, and Crafty Sparks had each brought down a Fokker, making a total of five besides the two-seater that I had crashed back of Don. Our lead was now safely beyond that of our next rival, 27 Squadron, and from that day it increased and has never been lessened. Avery, as well as Eugene Scroggy, one of my pilots from Des Moines, Iowa, were missing. I had seen one spot fall, but could not tell which of these pilots was in it. But in spite of this uncertainty, I felt so confident that both pilots were not dead, but merely prisoners, that I put off riding to their parents for weeks. At the cessation of hostilities, both of these boys were turned back to us by Germany. Scroggy had been shot through the foot, but was able to come back to his squadron. Poor Avery had received a disfiguring wound in the face, which had been neglected by the German surgeons. But he was immediately put under the best of our medical care after he was released from Germany, and will doubtless soon return to the States in as perfect condition as he left. End of chapter. Recording by Brett Downey.